The movie Hook, I know you guys can't see it very well up there, but um, you know, Peter returns to Neverland. Robin Williams as Peter Pan. Of course, at this point in time, he's an old man. He's grown older. He's grown older. Yes, there you go, right? He's no longer the little boy. And the lost boys don't recognize him. He gets dropped off there, and of course, the lost boys start teasing him, thinking that he's a pirate, because the only people that can be pirates are older people. Um, and in his absence, Rufio, the great character Rufio, I'm teens. If you guys haven't seen Hook, I'm telling you, you gotta see, you gotta see Hook. It literally was, I wanted to be one of the Lost Boys. When I was, I was like, man, Rufio, my brother and I used to fight over who was going to be Rufio and who was going to be Peter Pan. And I was like, man, I want to be Rufio. He gets to ride a skateboard, has sweet three mohawks. I'm like, oh. man, it was incredible. Uh, but in his absence, Rufio had become the leader. And Rufio comes down and he says, hey, this is not Peter Pan. And he takes the sword right there on the screen and draws a line in the sand. It says, if you want to follow him, step over that side of the line. If you want to follow me, step over on this side of the line. And of course, all the lost boys except for one rush over to the side of Rufio. But you know, it's a classic scene, right? It's a classic scene that we see in a lot of movies. Where there's a line drawn in the sand, whether figuratively or actually a true line drawn in the sand. You know, we see this in life, in war, in politics, you name it. We are forced to choose a side, to figure out which side of the line are we going to be on? Who are we going to go with? What are we going to believe? What are we going to join sides with? And it places us in a situation where we have to answer the question, which side am I going to be on? And as we come to the end of Luke, we find ourselves in a similar situation. We find ourselves in a very similar situation where we have to choose which side we're going to be on. You want to hit the next slide there? The line is drawn. Now, we've already seen this with his disciples during Jesus's um, arrest. We've seen this with Peter as well with the three denials. But during the trial, which we are going to be reading about today... We can clearly see which side those that encounter Jesus fall on. And the question that pops into my mind is, which side do I fall on? But not just simply with my words, but with my actions, with my life, with my heart, with my thoughts as well. I think the line is clear, but which side we may fall on may come as a surprise to us today. Let's go ahead and we'll start reading here. In verse 63. It says, The men who were... Of um, Luke chapter 22. The men who were guarding Jesus began mocking Him and beating Him. They blindfolded Him and demanded, Prophesy, who hit you? And they said many other insulting things to Him. Want to hit the slide there for me? The temple guards, they had the first go at Jesus. The first go of mocking Him. Maybe they were imitating His preaching style. If anyone slaps you on the cheek, Jesus, what do you got to do? You got to give him your other one. Boom, hit him again. Maybe they were poking fun at His 
supposed miracles. You healed others, why don't you heal that wound? Maybe they were berating him on his claims. You're going to destroy the temple in three days and rise it again? Boom. But then they turned this abuse into a game. Blindfolded him. Began hitting him. Prophesy, who hits you? Again and again and again. You can imagine this would take turn in rounds where each temple guard would get their shot. I think it's so easy for us to have an immediate disgust for what the temple guards did and how they treated Jesus in this way, the Son of God. They simply placed personal pleasure over Jesus. When it comes down to it, that's where the line is drawn. Jesus on one side and personal pleasure on the other. You can hit the next slide, please. What about you? Which side do you fall on when it comes to personal pleasure or Jesus? I think all of us at some point in time have chosen pleasure over Jesus. Our desire to please our sinful nature over Jesus. Just one little look at that girl. Boom. Right hook. I just want to go after my money, my job, my personal goals. Smack Jesus right upside the face. I love the attention I get at work from that guy. Just makes me feel so good. Another swing at Christ himself. It's just one little dirty joke. It's not like I didn't even tell it. I just laughed. I think we like to think that we're on the side of Jesus immediately. But we're the ones doing the swinging. In Galatians 6 and verse 7 it says, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Pleasing the flesh. Indulging in our sinful nature. Places us on the side. On a side. But we also need to know that God will not be mocked. Jesus will not be mocked by our attempt to play the role of Christian. Just because we claim to be on one side doesn't mean we are. Our life would need to show it. In Romans 2, it says, God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. Amen? But for those who are self-seeking and reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. You know, for myself, with my own personal battle with purity, I got baptized as a, as a teen disciple. I got baptized at age 16. You know, I felt like, man, as a disciple, I'm never going to mess up again. <laughs> never going to do it. I love Jesus too much. But I battled and fell and fell and fell when it came to my own personal purity. All throughout high school, into college, and even into my marriage. Four years into my marriage. A cycle of sin, concealment, and convenient confession. Began, I began to reap what I had sown. My marriage was not doing well. My marriage was not built on the foundations of Christ. And I began to reap what I had sown. Not just for the day of judgment, but here on earth as well. You know, I crossed the line. I chose personal pleasure over Jesus. 
But what about you today? Which side of the line are you standing on right now? Which side of the line are you standing on today? Let's continue reading in verse 66. You want to hit the next slide there for me? At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together. And Jesus was led before them. If you are the Messiah, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I asked you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They all asked, are you the Son of God? He replied, you say that I am. Then they said, why do we need to hear any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips. We'll stop right there. Now, Jesus is brought before the Jewish council and really asked one question. Are you the Messiah? Now, interesting question for them to ask because truly they believed in a Messiah. They did. They really believed in a Messiah wholeheartedly. They believed so much that this culturally... The Jews were separated from many others because they hoped so much in the future glory of what they could be that they were obsessed with it. Yep. Most everybody else was, hey, this is the here and now. They focused so much more on the future. Steadfast hope in this future redeemer ushering in the previous glory of their nation. They did believe in the Messiah. Generations of waiting for this man. Of God, but little did they know he was standing right in front of them. Next slide here. But it was pride that blinded them. Pride was what ended up putting them on the wrong side of that line. You know, one of the biggest moments of their life, when they got to see the opportunity of their nation's hopes and dreams, what they had been waiting for was standing right in front of them, but because of their own pride, because their inability to see the truth before them, they were blinded. You know, there was, um, my wife and I were having um, some time with Ed and Deb, getting some, get some help um, on, our, on our lives and uh, I remember we're, we're, we're kind of talking through a whole bunch of different scenarios and different things that are going on. And um, Deb, towards the end of the conversation, looks at me and she goes, have you ever gone after pride? And I was like, have I ever gone after pride? Yeah. A lot. I don't even know why you're asking. Did you need some help in your pride? I mean... I could reference some scriptures for you. <laughs> but yeah, I started thinking, like, why are you asking me about that? You don't think I've ever gone after pride? You don't think I've ever done that? What are you, what are you trying to say? You thinking I need to go after that? Is that what's going on right now? Of course, that was, all of, that was what I was thinking. That was what I was thinking. I was getting ferocious inside my head. But then, of course, I, you know, played the humble card. I thought to myself, well, I can't say no, because then that would make me look really bad. But then I decided, let me take it down the middle. And I said, well, I'm sure I have at some point in time. Why do you ask? 
She looks at me and she goes, eh, maybe you should. She's like, you can't really remember a time? And I was like, no. I'm not off the top of my head right now in this moment. But she said, maybe you should look into that. And she said, I'm, I'm concerned for the person that's never really gone after pride in their life. And she just left it right there. And I was like, Ugh. well, I guess I have a moment where I can decide either to be prideful and prove her point or go after my pride. But it just started messing with me. That question running through my head over and over again. Have I ever gone after my own pride? And I remember asking Ed and my wife, do I need to go after my pride? Tell me. You can be honest with me. Of course, my wife was, yeah, probably, yes. And Ed was like, yeah, I've been thinking about that for a while. And I'm like, all right, let's go ahead and do this. You know, there's a little hint there. If you want to find out how you're doing in your pride, you can just ask your spouse. And they'll be happy to tell you. Um... But there's a scripture in 2 Chronicles chapter 26 about Uzziah. And it convicted me because just like the Pharisees and the Jewish council here, they felt like they were, that Uzziah was doing the right thing. He felt like he was doing the right thing. That his choices were righteous and that gave him the right to do what he wanted. But it was actually his, his pride that blinded him from the truth. When was the last time that you worked on your pride? When was the last time you asked somebody, do you see any pride in my life? The problem with pride is that it does, it blinds us. We can't see it, even if we're looking for it. You've got to have somebody else point it out to you. The longer we're Christians, as we add to our spiritual resume and personal righteousness, build our database of passages, it's easier for us to fall into the trap of pride because we believe we're right we believe we have the answers and it brings us closer to the attitude and the heart of this council unable to see the truth because of their learning I think we do have such a great group of Christians here we are blessed in the Hampton Roads Church to have a mature congregation but with that comes the temptation of pride I think one of the areas that I see it the most in my own life and in the lives of, of, of you know, us here in the Hampton Roads Church is in our parenting. We feel like we got it all together. I'm not just talking to the parents of the young ones. I'm talking to all parents, teens included. When was the last time you asked somebody, do you see anything in my life? When it comes to my parenting. When was the last time you invited somebody into your home? Said, watch me. What prevents us from doing that is our pride. The shame there is that we let our family suffer. Because we're too proud to ask. So let it not be said that we failed to see the glory of God right in front of us. Because of our pride. Our pride that closed our eyes. The line is drawn on pride. One side, and Jesus the Messiah on the other. Let's continue reading here. If you want to hit the next slide for me. In chapter 23, we'll start in verse 1. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. And they began to 
accuse him saying, we have found this man uh, sub subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar, different than the temple tax, and claims to be the Messiah, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. Then Pilate answered, um, Pilate announced to the chief priests in the, in, the, in the crowd, I find no basis for this charge against this man. But they insisted. He stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased. Before a long time, he had been waiting. He had been wanting to see him. For what he had heard about him, he had hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. He, he played with him for, uh, he played with, uh, with him with many questions. But Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him, dressing him in an elegant robe. They sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends before they had been enemies. We'll stop right there. But Jesus is now brought before Pilate, questioned before this Roman official appointed over Judea and Samaria. Now, Pilate himself is not particularly fond of his job or the Jews for that matter. The Jews were viewed as a radical nuisance. Partly because they held on to this great hope that they had potential for glory. And they just wouldn't lay down before Rome. Many frequent revolts. But it was his job to watch over them. To keep them in control. And that's actually why he's in Jerusalem at this time. Away from his home. For the Passover festival. All there to watch over this group. To make sure that they were kept under control. Now personally... After studying this out, I think Pilate kind of gets a bad rap. I think that he was once a good ruler. I think he was full of ideals, had goals, wanted to do great things for the people that he was placed in charge of. We see that he even sees Jesus' innocence and pleads with the people. And we'll see later on, pleads with the crowd as well to let him, to let him go. He wants to do what is right. He's not this evil man. But he fails miserably to take action. Yeah. If you want to hit the next slide there. You know, apathy, as we can see, is a clear line drawn. It seems as Pilate had good intentions. He saw the injustices before him, but failed to act. Yeah. Good intentions, but in the end, we'll see he compromises. I grew up in uh, Northern Virginia. And one weekend um, in high school, I was driving through D.C. And, um, you know, traffic was bad, so we got off as it normally is and around D.C., around, around the Beltway. And we got off and we decided, hey, let's cut through D.C., and we were kind of running through one of the bad areas of, uh, the, of, um, of the district there. And, you know, and, and, and those kind of, we've all driven through that area, you know, at different points in time. And it was, it was lightly raining. We're there at a stoplight. And there's a car in front of us taking a left. And it's an um, SUV. The SUV drives, takes a left turn, flips over. 
on its lid. And as I'm sitting there watching, we're still waiting at the light. They had the green arrow. We still had the red light. I could see the woman hanging out of the sunroof. Her shoulders, her head, and her arm laying on the ground. My friend and I who were in the car, we kind of looked at each other and we're like, let's just go. And we drove off. I didn't even check to see later on and even on the news, was she okay? I didn't even call. Nothing. Just kept driving. Because of the neighborhood that I was in, I didn't want to stop. Just kept going on my way. I think if we look at our lives, we all fall into the trap of apathy. We have good intentions. We do. Great intentions. But we fail to act. We fail to do what we know is right. Where we just don't care. Whether it's in helping others. Or even with our own sin. In our lives. Or with our relationship with God. Or with our relationship with others within the body of believers. Reaching the lost. Or even adding on to our own righteousness. Some of us have become so apathetic. That we just don't care. We just keep going on. Right past the carnage. I think some of us have bought into that we feel like we've reached a point where this is as good as it gets. Never mind the passage that we spent this past month focusing on in 2 Corinthians 3. That the Holy Spirit dwells within you and is screaming out to transform you more and more into the image of Christ. But yet, we don't care. We just keep on going. Some of us have lived with the same sins for so long that it doesn't even shock us anymore. We're so used to just seeing it there every day. It doesn't even alarm us at all. Also, in Galatians 6, the same passage that we read further on in verse 9, it says, Let us not become weary in doing good. For the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give How have you become weary of doing good? Has apathy set in for you as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus today? Those have been around for a while and haven't been baptized or haven't decided, man, I'm going to make that step and I'm going to cross over the line and become a Christian. What are you waiting for? Your apathy doesn't excuse your guilt. It didn't for Pilate, and it won't for you. Your good intentions won't be good enough. When it comes to apathy, which side of the line are you on? You know, in 1667, possibly the worst deal ever was made. The superpowers of the world at that time were claiming countries left and right. In reality, these weren't theirs. They would just stick a flag in it and say, it's mine. Never mind who's living here. This is my country. I take it for my own. Why? Because I have a flag. And they would trade these colonies, these countries, as they saw fit. You know, the Dutch at the time, they desired an island that was under British control. This island was rich in the resource of nutmeg. Now, nutmeg at the time, for us, you might be like, yeah, nutmeg, yeah. <laughs> Whatever. 
I don't even know what I use that for. It's in Coca-Cola. You can also put it in your coffee if you so desire. Um, but nutmeg had increased in value some 6,000%. So from an, an investment standpoint, this was a great resource for your country. The Dutch, they had an island that they were willing to trade. This island didn't have any spices on it. They saw no use for it. It was here in Northern America, in fact. No real resource. It's just an island of trees. So different from this Pacific, this South Pacific island that they value. This deal was brokered for a pile of run in exchange for the island of Manhattan. Yeah. Nutmeg soon fell in prices, making the land a fraction of what, worth a fraction of what they hoped it would be. Now, of course, we've all heard of Manhattan. We all know the value of just a small sliver or a parking spot in Manhattan. To the Dutch, the island of Manhattan had lost its usefulness. There was nothing of value from what they could see. Next slide here. And here we see Herod was pleased to see Jesus. But what Herod wanted to see a miracle. He wanted to see a sign. He said, perform for me, Jesus. Show me something. But Jesus stood silent, refusing to speak or to show any sign at all. Herod, frustrated by this refusal, mocked him and brought his guards in as well. In the eyes of Herod, Jesus, unable to perform, Jesus had lost his usefulness. Hit the, you want to hit the next slide there. But what about for you? Has Jesus lost his usefulness in your life? That we can look at our relationship with Jesus in a similar fashion as Herod. I prayed. Why didn't you answer? I've been a disciple. Why am I still struggling? I've served for years. Why am I suffering? Herod's heart was exposed. It was full of arrogance. What can Jesus do for me? How can he serve my personal interests? And Herod himself was a puppet king. A false king. Allowed by Rome to exist. But not even a real Jew. Not from the line of David. Not a king chosen by God. Herod had bought into his own false reality. That he was someone of power and importance. Someone who could demand a sign from Christ himself. That's exactly the same attitude we can take with Jesus. What can Jesus do me for today? Do for me today? We can start to believe our own hype, our own importance. Dress ourselves in the robe of the king as we stand before the true king himself. That we can approach Jesus and demand a sign or a miracle or even an answered prayer. Only to be frustrated, to get an attitude, or even mock God himself when what we have hoped and prayed for doesn't come in our time. If God has been silent in your life, maybe you're approaching him with the wrong attitude. Maybe if he's refusing to perform a sign for you, maybe it's because your heart's not in the right spot. In Job 38... Job repl God replies to Job, who is this that obscures my plans? 
with words without knowledge. Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. And God goes on to tell Job and to ask him, were you there when I created the earth, the seas, the sky, the stars, the sun, the day, the night, the weather, all the creatures. But yet you demand for an answer. You demand for something. But who are you? Some prayers have been left unanswered in our lives for a long time, haven't they? But who's to say that that's not God's plan? Who's to say that doesn't fall within His sovereignty? Can be extremely frustrating. We've got to protect our heart that we don't go frustrated and bitter. I know for parents and, and for even family members and myself included in this, we can see our brothers, our sisters, our sons, our daughters, who have either walked away from Christ or have chosen not to become a baptized disciple. But we can get so frustrated, so beat down. and say, God, why aren't you doing this right now? I've been praying for my brother for years. Why, hasn't, why haven't you moved in his life in the way that I want right now? I get frustrated. I demand for a sign. got to be careful that we don't cross the line in arrogance. The last individual I want to talk about today is, let's continue on in verse 13. Pilate called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he has sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. But the crowd shouted, away with this man. Release Barabbas to us. Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again. But they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. For the, first, for the third time he spoke to them. Why? What crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified. And their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder. The one they had asked for and surrendered Jesus to their will. Next slide here. The last person I want to look at is Barabbas. The man found guilty of the very thing that Jesus was charged with. And then some. Even notice here, Pilate's attempts to try to free Jesus. With no action. But the people wanted Jesus crucified. So badly that they were willing to allow a killer to roam their streets. But let's look at Barabbas. He stood silent. I mean, why wouldn't he be silent? He's literally getting away with murder. He stands silent. He doesn't say anything. doesn't address Pilate or the people. He doesn't say, I am the criminal here. This man has done nothing. I can't have this on my conscience. Silent. I'm going to hit the next slide there. Silence. Or indifference. Is not a free pass. 
We see Jesus. We know of him. What he's done. His sacrifice. And what we should do. But yet we do nothing. We stand silent. We choose to be silent. We step over the line. Because of our silence. Like Barabbas. Silence doesn't change the truth. Some of us have been hanging around the church for quite a while. Arguing within inside our heads. Debating back and forth. Do I cross the line? Do I not cross the line? Do I become a Christian? Or do I stay where I'm at? Should I speak up and say something? Should I say, I'm the sinner. I'm the one who crucified Christ. I'm the one deserving of death. I need to speak up and make this right. Some of us fall silent. If you've been coming out for a while, running from the truth, silence does not change a thing. For Barabbas, it just postponed his death sentence. It just postponed and held it over. His silence did not afford him life at all. Just postponed his own judgment. Not before man, but before the one who took his own place. Now, there is a line in the sand. I think some of us, even for myself, upon preparing the sermon, realize that I'm closer than I would have thought. Others are clearly standing on the other side. This line represents more than just me on one side and Jesus on the other. I want to hit the next slide there. We are not any different than those who looked at Jesus, that, that we looked at here in Luke. That those who sat in judgment of Jesus. You know, we have a choice. Do I believe that Jesus is the Messiah, King of Kings, my Savior, my Lord, and I will follow him? Or on the other side of that line is complete rejection. The nice thing about the line that there's no space in between. It's either he's your Messiah or your rejection. It's one or the other. So today, is he your Messiah? Or have you rejected God himself? My challenge to you is I want you to ask yourself, where am I at when it comes to this line? Messiah or rejection? I want you to ask yourself this week, what do I need to do? Or go after to move myself from rejection to Messiah. What can I do this week? What even the small step can I make to move myself from one side of the line to the other? What can I do this week to cross that line? You know, to cross that line, it literally just takes a step. It takes a step. That's all we have to do. Decide, I'm going to make that step. I'm going to change. I'm going to repent. I'm going to do this. And I'm going to take that step. You know, the temple guards, the Jewish council, Pilate, Herod, Barabbas, all took a seat of judgment on who Jesus was. Their choice became clear by their actions. Jesus was also very clear by his actions and his words. That I am the son of man. And in Daniel 7, 
And we'll end with this. In verse 9 it says, As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair on his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were open. Later on in verse 13, it says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like the Son of Man, coming with clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days. And was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and people of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. The son of man that Jesus was referencing more than likely was his exact passage here in Daniel. That Jesus will return. But he will return seated in the seat. Of judgment. So my question to you. Which side will you be on? Not only today. But when Jesus returns. Amen. Amen. Thank you.